Welcome to Your Truth Revealed, a video podcast that explores your hidden physical and mental health potential. I'm Erica Marcoux, and I share with you the power of self-knowledge. I interview industry professionals to talk about how you can be your own health expert. You're listening to episode 17, Know Your Drugs. This is the first part of an interview with psychiatrist Dr. Brent Turnipseed. And this is the last interview of season one. Season two will start again in September. You can stay connected all year round by following me on Instagram at Erica Marcoux. Brent Turnipseed has been featured on Behind the Scenes with Lawrence Fishburne on public television. He received his medical degree in psychiatry from the University of Texas. He and his wife then started a clinic, Roots Behavioral Health, that uses an integrative model. And here people receive help with their mental health from practitioners who collaborate with various therapies. Now one therapy in particular is ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. An integrated approach is one in which you say, okay, well, we're going to talk about medicines and treatments that might help, but we need to talk about your diet. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about supplements you take, if you take any at all. We're going to talk about your physical activity or exercise or your yoga or your meditation. Listen as we explore supplements and prescription drugs to balance your physical and mental health. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Erica. Yeah. So my goal for this interview is to share some breakthrough therapy treatments that can treat depression and anxiety and other mental health issues. How does your approach to patient care use an integrative model? I've been out of training since 2010, and I think I kind of found my place in my profession just in the last couple of years, and I can get later on to a little bit about how I got to this point. And my wife is a therapist. We run our clinic together. I'll mention her from time to time because our connection in this work is very important. On the West Coast, if you talk about integrative psychiatry, it's common. It's definitely more common than in Texas, right? Uh, whether it's California, Oregon, or Washington. They've been doing this for several years now. If you're a practitioner like myself in Texas with standard training, if you start to get to know your colleagues on the West Coast, and not just the West Coast, but I'm just saying them for example, you start to see that there is a different way of practicing medicine, practicing psychiatry. It's sort of like taking your work one step further. I know our training helps people, but in psychiatry in particular, there's a high percentage of people who have conditions that are treatment resistant, meaning Mm. the standard care we have, the standard medications, the standard psychotherapies, they help half, maybe two thirds of people. Oh, wow. But there's a good percentage of people that get minimally better or never better. And so if you start really ruminating on this about all the people that come see us, spend time seeing us, spend money seeing us, you can't help but notice if you're paying attention that a lot of our folks don't get better. And if you're a feeling person like me, eventually you think, okay, I got to do something about this, or I need Mm -hmm. to try to think of um, new ways to help them. I think at its core, an integrative approach is one that looks at not just taking symptoms that a person comes to you saying, you know, I'm depressed, for example, and then saying, well, here's your Prozac, or here's your Wellbutrin, or what have you, you know, antidepressant medications. 
an integrative approach is one in which you say, okay, well, we're going to talk about medicines and treatments that might help, but we need to talk about your diet. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about supplements you take, if you take any at all. We're going to talk about your physical activity or exercise or your yoga or your meditation. We're going to talk about your medical conditions besides mental health ones, if you have any. If you're not aware of that you have any, we need to do a, a decent investigation dive into it and find out is there some underlying cause for why you're depressed besides depression itself because in many cases there is and lifestyle has a huge effect on how we feel and depending on on what you're eating if you're eating a bunch of junk food and not exercising and not sleeping well that's going to have an impact on your mental health that's right our country i mean i'm sure you know all western countries but i think our country in particular has a, a difficult history with food Mm. And for the last decade or so, there's always a new fad diet. And I think we're kind of getting to a point where most people, even if they aren't super educated about their diet or nutrition, are starting to realize that most diet plans try to eliminate sugars Mm -hmm. or refine carbs. And that's kind of like a starting point for how to get healthier. But I do think that people need to minimize meats. They need to minimize processed foods. They need to emphasize more fruits and vegetables. Things that seem obvious, but there is this notion too that unless a a licensed healthcare professional is telling you or (laughs) educating you what to do, a lot of people may not follow it. The same is true for smoking. There's all these interesting statistics about smoking, about how if a person goes to their healthcare provider, and if the healthcare provider doesn't ask them if they smoke, they're less likely to ever quit. But just being asked the question gets the person to start thinking about it. So therapists, physicians, we're all at an interesting point where at least we can get people to start thinking about changing their lifestyle, which could translate to better mental health. Right. Excellent. Are there any supplements in particular that you would recommend and why? With supplements, a person in my position, you could recommend a few things or you could get carried away and recommend (laughs) hundreds of things. I'm going to guess, but it seems like there's probably a multi-billion dollar industry in the United States for supplements and vitamins and herbs. Many of them maybe aren't that useful. Maybe they don't have that much evidence for them, but there's plenty of stuff out there that really is useful and sometimes can even take the place of a medication. Most people that come to see a psychiatrist, most common reason is for stress and anxiety. And after that, it's probably depression and then a variety of other conditions. Most of the supplements I recommend are aimed at improving uh, general mood, concentration and memory, and energy level. Those are what most people come to us saying that is not optimal. Their energy is low, their mood isn't right, or they can't focus or concentrate and they can't remember things as well. All the supplements I've compiled fill the gap there. So I try to recommend supplements that are you know, going to fit the person's needs. So for example, mm-hmm. something I'll generally tell almost anybody they should consider is a multivitamin. I mean, it's basic, mm-hmm. but at least it helps you fill the gaps on some things you might be missing in your diet. I'll recommend a probiotic to a lot of people. Probiotics are great, but tricky. Probiotics, as in healthy bacteria you're adding to your gut, can boost your immune function, can make it easier to lose weight, make it easier to stay healthy, fight infections. The trick with probiotics is there's a little bit of trial and error. One probiotic you know, brand that's sold may be great for you, but may not be great for me. And there's dozens and dozens out there. And so is it just 
trial and find out what works best for you? It's trial, and it's also if specific strains have been studied for certain conditions, uh, looking at the specific strains. The other one is omega fatty acids. Common source of omega fatty acids is fish oil. So for our patients that are vegan or vegetarian, similar omega fatty acids can be had through uh, flaxseed or hemp seeds, actually. And so I'll recommend these. So why are these important? These are very good for brain health. Yes. There's evidence that they may reduce risks of many different types of cancer, may reduce risk of dementia. Uh, a lot of my patients report lots of health benefits from taking fish oil and omega fatty acids. Those three things right there are a good foundation. Mm-hmm. And then the air supplements, I'll just kind of list some off. I sure. won't go into all them. But these are common ones we'll recommend for different things. So CoQ10 is big. Uh, vitamin D, I could go on about vitamin D for a long time. Vitamin D deficiency is very common in the United States. So for the right people, if they have a D deficiency, we'll recommend it. And for people that need vitamin D, many of them don't know, they actually have to get an adequate amount of magnesium in their diet or your body can't absorb the vitamin D. Uh, yeah. And about 60 to 70% of Americans don't get an adequate source of magnesium in their diet. Magnesium mm-hmm. also eases stress and anxiety. Mm-hmm. We also recommend something called L-methylfolate, um, which helps antidepressant treatments work better. Uh, B12 for people that are deficient right. in B12, which is also not that uncommon. Um, and then there's some adaptogenic herbs that are shown to reduce stress over time. Uh, rhodiola is one. Mm-hmm. Ashwagandha is another. Um, some people's depression improves with a supplement called SAM-E. That's S-A-M uh-huh. with a little E at the end. I recommend L-theanine to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. L-theanine is in green tea. It makes people feel calmer and more focused, less stressed mm-hmm. out. Some people do well with 5-HTP, which is a precursor to making serotonin. But those are some of the big ones. Right. And as a consumer or a patient, it is true, I believe, that you can get tested to see, for instance, where your vitamin D levels are, where your B levels are, so that you can have at least a starting point. Because I think sometimes, I know for me, I've been in a situation where a practitioner was telling me a bunch of different supplements to take, and it was completely overwhelming. And I needed something that was more... For my personality, something more factual or fact-based. So I went and got a complete physical and got to see where my vitamin D levels are. And that helped me then make a more informed decision about how much I was going to supplement that or not. So is that something that you recommend to patients? So almost for anybody new coming to our clinic, Mm -hmm. we're going to recommend that they consider doing just a basic lab panel. Great. To check for common vitamin deficiencies, check for thyroid function. We also check um, something called C-reactive protein, mm-hmm. which is a very uh, reliable marker of chronic inflammation. We can talk more about that later, about the role that our immune system and inflammation can play in chronic depression. But yeah, we do a basic panel of labs, almost all of which is covered by most insurance plans. So we're not ordering like a ridiculous amount of tests that right. don't really have any validity for why you're ordering them in the first place Mm -hmm. and once we do that let's say someone is low in vitamin d um, or let's say their crp the the marker of chronic inflammation is elevated meaning Mm -hmm. they have inflammation that's not the end of the story the next thing is to figure out okay why is this so is it that you're not getting enough sunlight that's why your d is low is it that you have an autoimmune condition interfering with absorption of your vitamins so it's not the end of the story we have to keep digging and digging to figure out the cause of that in the first place otherwise they can replace it but 
it's probably not going to be a lot better until we can figure out what's causing this in the first place. Getting to the root cause. That's right. Yeah. Excellent. The next question, this ties in so well, what is the role of immune function in relation to chronic psychiatric conditions? This is one of many hot topics in in psychiatry and mental health right now, but it's one that's definitely on my radar. Because again, if you work with people with chronic conditions, many of whom don't get better, and you want to figure out, you know, why is this person still struggling with depression, Mm -hmm. despite, you know, we're in the 21st century here, we've got all these great treatments available, and they're still struggling. A uh, British psychiatrist, it's Edward Bullmore, just came out with a book at the end of last year called The Inflamed Mind. Uh-huh. I'm a very slow reader, but I read this book really, really quickly. He's summarizing this topic exactly, and he's saying that for many people with chronic depression in particular, they often do have an inflammatory component to their depression. So what does that mean? Um, let's take a really easy example that he used, rheumatoid arthritis. Okay. So rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune condition, which causes pain and swollen joints, you know, often in the hands, but other parts in the body as well. So there's inflammation in the person's hands, right? Mm-hmm. And they take medications to reduce the inflammation. Dr. Bullmore says that the old way of looking at a person like this if they happen to have depression, would be to say, well, of course they're depressed. You know, they feel miserable because they're dealing with chronic pain and Uh, having this chronic debilitating or or just the psychological knowledge that I've got this, you know, condition that makes me feel miserable and is debilitating and limits my life. So there's like a pain connection and a psychological connection, just, you know, not liking your place in life with this. Mm -hmm. But he says, no, no, there's, and he cites all the studies. There's absolutely plenty of evidence to show that many of these inflammatory cells in the body that are causing the pain rheumatoid arthritis easily cross what's called the blood-brain barrier. Okay. So that's this sort of like borderline in which certain cells can pass into or pass through and certain cells can't. And if they pass through this barrier, they get into the brain. And so he says plenty of these inflammatory cells, some of them are called cytokines, these cytokines, you know, float into the brain and trigger off cascades of inflammation, which he hypothesizes probably contributes to the person being stuck in depression or chronically depressed. So if I can pause there just to see if I understand, there's inflammation that's happening in the hands right. with the arthritis, and there's also inflammation that's happening in the brain. Correct. Okay. It's like systemic inflammation. Systemic inflammation. So it could be throughout the entire body. Yes. Okay. And that would cause a person to feel depressed, perhaps. Okay. And so the next question is, what do you do about that if you discover that there is a cause of this inflammation? So what do you do? There's evidence that if the inflammation itself is addressed and treated adequately, that the person is more likely to recover from depression. Mm -hmm. And there's several trials out there using minocycline, which is an antidepressant, and some using... Uh, Celebrex, which is a medicine used for arthritis, Mm -hmm. uh, using these medications on people with treatment-resistant depression, and they had fairly good results. So I've taken a couple of my own patients. We exhausted many options, and they had inflammation. And I actually prescribed a combination of minocycline and baby aspirin per the results of two studies I read. 
and my people actually got better. Wow. I, w- I would love to say they were cured. They weren't cured, but they told me that their energy and thinking and wow. mood significantly improved after a few weeks of an antibiotic that normally treats acne. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The antibiotic was helping with the original inflammation. Correct. So minocycline in particular, the, the reason why researchers chose that one is, well, one, it's inexpensive. It's relatively safe. I mean, they prescribe it to uh, teenagers that mm-hmm. have acne. Mm-hmm. Minocycline readily and easily crosses the blood-brain barrier, and it's potently anti-inflammatory in wow. the brain. So it stands to reason that for some people, that, that may really help their depression get better. What an excellent understanding. I mean, there's just so much exciting things happening right now. And his book said we're kind of just getting the tip of the iceberg yeah. here. So hopefully a decade from now, we'll be a lot farther along in our I understanding. I hope so. Yeah. Well, there was a study that I found that was published in 2016 by the Journal of Psychopharmacology. And it showed that 80% of cancer patients with anxiety and depression responded positively to psychedelic treatment. Uh, one of the biggest breakthroughs in treating severe depression is ketamine. What is ketamine? How does it help? Ketamine is another hot and somewhat controversial topic in our mm-hmm. field right now. So ketamine is a FDA-approved, currently legal medication. It's classified as a dissociative anesthetic. So it's still widely used in anesthesia. In fact, it's often used in children because it has such a good safety profile. So, for example, why does it have a good safety profile? Many um, anesthetics, many opiates um, cause respiratory depression, meaning they prevent you from breathing, which is Mm -hmm. why if you get surgery, you're intubated and an anesthesiologist sits with you to make sure you keep breathing and basically don't die during the operation. Mm -hmm. Ketamine hardly causes any respiratory depression, so it has a very good safety profile as a result. So that's just kind of an aside on its historical background. I think it was FDA approved in 1970 or 71. So it's been around for a long time. We have a lot of data on it. So, and it was used as an anesthesia in 1960s and then used during the Vietnam War. Correct. Yeah. It was used as a safe anesthetic in the battlefield during the Vietnam War. Soldiers, previously, I think they were usually given an opiate pain medication, Mm -hmm. which causes respiratory depression. If you have a gunshot wound, you're trying to make it back to the hospital and you get lots of Demerol or opiates or what have you, your chances of dying are higher, even though you're in less pain. Right. But... They started using ketamine widely in the Vietnam War. They had the lowest mortality rate in modern warfare, at least up to that point, because you know wow. the soldiers like were making it back to surgery alive. They, right. they were not dying. So fast forward to the year 2000. Mm-hmm. In 2000, the Department of Psychiatry at Yale did a study using IV uh, an infusion of ketamine, mm-hmm. uh, but sub-anesthetic dose. So we're talking about a fifth the dose used for anesthesia. Okay. And they gave it to people, mm, I think it was eight people with treatment-resistant depression, just one infusion, and they followed them for mm, about a week or so. I have a question about yeah. that. How did it even occur to them to use ketamine to start treating depression in 2000? Yeah, good question. Anytime there's a medicine that's been around for a long time, a lot of times patients are kind of suspicious and they think old medicines are dangerous. I want brand name new stuff. And I try to tell patients, "Mm, the opposite's true. If something just came out in the market, we actually know very little about that medicine or long-term risks. So ketamine's been around for 50 plus years. And so when a medicine's been around for a long time, 
a lot of things are going to be published as case reports. Like, patient wakes up from surgery who had depression, and their depression spontaneously recovered. So it's seeing how certain medications that that we've been using could be used for different purposes. And that happens frequently? That's called off-label use. So off-label use of medications in the United States is very common because, like you said, you come across these other benefits to medicines mm-hmm. by by accident, by chance, serendipitously. This is true for off-label use of ketamine for depression. Huh. And so that's what they discovered. So they went ahead and did, did this study in the year to 2000. Test, to test the hypothesis that it treats depression. And they had about a 50% response rate, meaning about half the people, their depression significantly improved in two, three days. And so between the year 2000 and, well, last year, 2018, there's been a couple of dozen larger studies Mm -hmm. done of IV ketamine for almost always it's treatment-resistant depression. And the statistics are very consistent. The response rates vary usually between 60 and 80%, so maybe 70% average. Mm -hmm. Something about that I should say. Right now, if we have somebody with treatment-resistant depression, meaning they've tried a few treatments and they've you know, not gotten significantly better, they stand, depending on the study you look at, a 10 to 20% chance of improving, no matter what we prescribe okay. or what therapy we recommend. But we take that same group and we give them IV ketamine and 70% of them respond. Respond wow. by definition. That's pretty shocking. That's huge. Okay. That's why we're okay. talking about it. It's right. a big deal. That's a big deal. Response means a person's uh, symptoms reduce by at least 50%. Wow. So again, it's not a cure, but it's a significant improvement. And, right. and ketamine significantly improves treatment-resistant depression. Want to improve your energy and sleep? Our featured product is ashwagandha by Life Extension. This Indian herb helps alleviate tension and stress. Ashwagandha inhibits the stress hormone cortisol up to 26%. It supports brain and nervous system function to improve energy, sleep, and overall well-being. Go to your truthrevealed.com store and use promo code TRUTH for a 20% discount. Welcome to the bonus segment of my video podcast, Your Truth Revealed. Many of us are experiencing an increase in anxiety and depression because we are uncertain. You might even experience excessive worry, difficulty sleeping, and feeling agitated. And these symptoms can interfere with your daily life. And it's normal to wonder how to get help and who to turn to. And a common question is, when is it time to consult a psychiatrist? And there are some common misconceptions about seeking help. And I want to share four common myths about seeing a psychiatrist. Myth number one, your primary care doctor can properly treat mental health issues. Well, the fact is, at times you need to see a specialist, just like you would see a cardiologist for a heart issue. A psychiatrist is a medical doctor that specializes in brain health. A psychiatrist can properly assess your mental health and provide you with relief more effectively. Myth number two, a psychiatrist will force medication on you. Well, the truth is a good psychiatrist will offer treatment that is tailored to your needs. 
Treatment may include lifestyle changes, supplements, and medications. Myth number three, asking for help means you're crazy or weak. This couldn't be further from the truth. The fact is that by asking for help, you are being brave and empowered. You're a human just like everyone else. And taking responsibility by looking for ways to feel better is one of the best things you can do for yourself. Lastly, myth number four, mental illness is uncommon. Now here are the facts. One in five Americans will experience mental illness in their lifetime. And I can't stress this enough. We all know that with physical health, you can experience illness. Just like with mental health, you can also experience mental illness. And having the help of a psychiatrist can make all the difference. And if you need guidance taking charge of your mental health, feel free to schedule a free consultation with me. Go to yourtruthreveal.com slash sessions. Please subscribe and add a rating and review at Your Truth Revealed on Apple iTunes. There are also great resources in the show notes. Tune in for episode 18. It's the continuation of this interview with psychiatrist Brent Turnipseed. MDMA. This is another breakthrough uh, in treating post-traumatic stress disorder, which is PTSD. This is also commonly known as ecstasy or molly. MDMA may represent the first pharmacologic cure in psychiatry, which is huge Wow! to say that. The Me- cure for PTSD. It could cure PTSD. I'm Erica Marcoux. Thanks for listening.